Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 22nd, 2023. Uh, there's something oddly familiar about the headlines today. On the one hand, we're being told that the situation in the Middle East is new and it's changing everything. We've heard that before, but the headlines seem to be so familiar. We have on The Guardian, which tends to be more left-leaning, pictures of grieving Palestinians with their children. We have the BBC talking about rows of dead bodies in a Gaza hospital. We have the American press much more sympathetic to Israel. Uh, the Washington Post leads with a, a piece about documents found on fighters revealing Hamas capabilities. Um, the Wall Street Journal notes that the uh, Gaza hospital hit by a, a failed uh, rocket came from uh, the Palestinian rather than the Israel side. Meanwhile, the New York Times uh, is trying to be about as fair as possible and suggesting that the conflict is about to widen. Uh, one person who has been through this before and uh, is not a professional political scientist or analyst, but someone who, like all Israelis, lives this situation, is my guest today. Noah Yedlin is one of Israel's best-known writers. She's the author of a wonderful new book, uh, Stockholm, a novel, which we're going to talk about after the break. It's out next month. Uh, and she also wrote a piece a few days ago about uh, the situation back in October, uh, on October the 11th, I'm Lying to My Children. She's joining us from her apartment in um, Tel Aviv. Uh, Noah, Am I right? Is there something weirdly familiar about this narrative? You're a novelist, or, or, or is there something completely different? Uh, on the one hand, there is something depressingly familiar. Uh, this, is, this is a situation that has been going on for decades now. We're living in a situation of war. Sometimes it's a dormant war. Sometimes it's an active war but we don't have peace with the Palestinians. That's a, an obvious fact. And, um, and, this is, and this keeps happening over and over again. We have, uh, we have the Hamas terrorists attack Israeli civilians. We then attack in the Gaza Strip, we attack Hamas. There is another military operation there is some quiet for some peace. It's not peace, but it's like a, a ceasefire for a while, for a year, for two years. And then there is another, uh, and then it, it happens all over again because the Hamas, uh, the Hamas is armed again. They regain their power. It's endless and it will not end until there is a political solution, not a military one. But the thing that makes this, uh, the thing that happened on uh, October 7th, very, very different is the scope. On October 7th, we had 1,500, 100 and 400 people murdered, babies murdered, uh, mothers raped, uh, children beheaded, 
this was a massacre in innocent people, innocent civilians. This is something that brings to mind, brings to everyone's mind the what we have seen in the Holocaust. We have um, and we have over 200 people kidnapped to the, to the Gaza Strip, including babies, including a three-year-old girl, including an eight-year-old boy, including 85-year-old senile old people who don't have their medication. This is uh, a crime against humanity. And this is something that we have never dealt with before. And Israel is shattered. It is, it is horror-stricken. It is sorrow-stricken. Everyone here cries their eye out from morning to night. We all attend funerals. We all write eulogies, eulogies for entire families sometimes. Sometimes it's two parents and their three children's murder. It's, it's something that I think it's the worst thing that has ever that has happened to Israel since the Holocaust. There is no, no doubt about that. Well, there was, don't need me telling you this, there was no Israel before the Holocaust. Israel came out of, out of the Holocaust. You, you note in your... You're, you're right, of course, it's, it's, I meant the, the Jewish people. Not right, the, the Jewish Israel. people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the piece you wrote, so much moving stuff has been written in the last few days. You note in the piece that um, your kids are crying, everyone is crying um and you you're having to lie to your children are you still lying the idea that everything is going to get back to normal you know i have a 13 year old and an eight year old and the 13 year old you know she's uh, on social media she has friends she goes around and there's a there's so much i can lie to her i try to hide the, the scope of what happened I didn't want her to be alarmed. I didn't want her to be afraid that someone can come in at the middle of the night and kidnap her from her bed. So I didn't tell her uh, exactly what happened. She knows obviously that there is a war. Um, as the days go by, obviously she knows more and more. She has a girl in her class, that uh, a classmate, that her aunt was murdered in the in the in one of the kibbutzes. Um, everyone knows someone. Yeah, everyone. you you know in your piece that your hairdresser's mother was kidnapped. Is that right? Yeah, my hairdresser's mother. You can see her. She's eighty four years old. She's she you can see her riding a motorcycle with a. Oh, commander. she she was the one in that photo. Yes. Yes, and um, and she's you know she's an old woman. The the absurd is that many of the people that were murdered are the most left wing voters of Israel. This is an area of Israel, the kibbutz in general, is an area of Israel that is very much against Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a generalization, you know, so many people were killed. Obviously, there are people there from all walks of society and from all parties and all political opinions. But in general, these are people that are very much against Benjamin Netanyahu, who are very much against the, the judicial coup that was uh, in the focus of, of Israel's politics over the past year. 
And these are people who are very, very much uh, peace seekers. These are people who, some of them were working with Palestinians in peace organization, trying to, to make some, to, to, to prepare some kind of a chance for peace. And these are the people that were murdered. Not even a satirical novelist and a slightly absurdist novelist like you could make this story up, could they? It's, 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 you, you note um, that it represents, for the Jewish people at least, uh, a return of history. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Dara Horn. She's been on the show. She has a, a book out, Everybody Loves Dead Jews. She, and she had a piece uh, in the New York Times about uh, the reason why so many Jews can't stop shaking now is it's it's bringing history back to the Jewish people. Um, is is that the sense in Israel? You note that it's the worst thing that has happened to the Jews since the Holocaust. Uh, it's definitely the sense now in Israel. People are using the word Holocaust. It's uh, the term is our second Holocaust, the Holocaust of October seventh. It is, um, it is something, it's... Do you, do you, um, sorry to jump in here, um, uh, uh, Noah, is that a term that you're comfortable with, a second Holocaust? I don't think, I, I'm not, it's funny, you know, I'm a novelist and I'm a person of words, but I don't think that, um, that I have a lot of respect for words. But I think that the problem here is what happened and not one term or another. I think that a second Holocaust, it's not a second Holocaust because 6 million and uh, 1,400 is, is not the same number and it's not even close. But it's, it's a Holocaust in the sense that sites or stories that we were told about the Holocaust, about children, hiding in closets or in um or in you know like Anne Frank or in, in very very horrible conditions people hiding children hiding and without food or water just so that the Nazis won't find them we have these sites all over again because we have children that were locked in closets for 14 hours without food or water, hearing their parents being slaughtered by Hamas outside of the closet and keeping themselves quiet so that they're not next. These are, these are very, very unwatchable images and unthinkable sights that inevitably bring to mind uh, the Holocaust, which was uh, something that happened to innocent people. And I think that, you know, as usual, the children are the ones where it, it's the hardest for us to imagine that people do these things to children. We are speaking with Noah Yedlin, the author of Stockholm, a novel. The book came out a few years ago, I think back in 2016 in Israel. It was a huge hit and it's being made into a television series and it's out uh, in the US. Uh, this month as an English translation. Um, Noah, what do you, I'm not sure how closely you're following what's happening uh, in uh, in the United States in terms of 
the issues here. There's the same in the UK, all around the world. There's a huge debate. People seem increasingly entrenched within their communities. Lots of controversy, daily controversy over university funding and writers. One prominent uh, American Vietnamese writer, Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, uh, yesterday had a one event pulled because he's been critical of Israel. Is this just business as usual? The camps in the West, pro-Israel, pro-Palestine camps, just on steroids, or is your sense something different here? And yesterday, I think there were a hundred thousand people demonstrating for the Palestinian. I don't know what for, for, for in sympathy for the the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza in London. Uh, I actually do follow what's going on in the world and the and the way that the world perceives what happened in is what happens in Israel now. I think it's again it's you know there's the there's the usual ritual and mm-hmm. there are the usual camps but I think again this is something different whenever there's a military operation in Gaza and whenever Israel attacks in Gaza and whenever there are innocent people killed in Gaza which happens now as well this is something that happens it I know that it happens no one denies that it happens. This is horrible. Innocent people shouldn't die nowhere. And But whenever something like this happens, you can find so many Israelis, mostly left-wing Israelis and human Israelis, that are very much against these operations and definitely against any kind of harm to innocent civilians. This is, but this time the difference is that we feel, or at least many people feel, I feel that the people that are demonstrating against Israel, they neglect to mention that the Hamas uh, slaughtered children and babies. They took babies out of their fetuses, out of their um, mother's uh, stomach, womb. And these are, you cannot be for peace and for the Palestinians and for, um, and for a solution and not, and not mention the fact that there, are, there is uh, an atrocity, that there is something unthinkable that was, um, that was done here. How can people... Um, how can people demonstrate for the Palestinians and not even recognize that there was something um, unprecedented done here? You know, in, in the United States, you had 9-11. 9-11, it's over 3,000 people killed. But if you think of the number of uh, Americans and the number of Israelis, just imagine 1,400 people this is an unbearable percentage of the population. And, um, and I think that the fact that many people don't mention that, and they mention only the pain and the suffering of the Palestinian side, I think it's, uh, there's something hypocritical about that. Uh, or something, I, I don't know how you can consider yourself a peace seeker and human and not... I not mention what happened here. No, you mentioned the left. Uh, a few weeks ago, actually, I had uh, an Israeli sociologist 
uh, Ava Ilus on the show. She's one of the great critics of Netanyahu. Um, she, she wrote a piece recently about the accountability of, of Netanyahu for this crisis and tragedy. I read a couple of pieces about how it's becoming difficult within Israel to be uh, for Israelis, for leftist Israelis, to be critical of the government and to be distanced from the government. You're a very prominent writer. Is there a change in, in the atmosphere or is there still toleration? Is there still a space for uh, uh, critics of everything that's happened within Israel itself? There is a lot of space for that. And actually, it's now, I feel that the cr criticism now is unstoppable. People write about this in Haaretz magazine, in other magazines. People talk about that in the most, you know, uh, mainstream media outlets. It's even there already because the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's accountability for this atrocity is so obvious and so. I mean, I would say that it's. Uh, what do you say? Res responsible. What, what, I, I want to be careful about what you said. His responsibility. Or for the outrage? Are you saying that he's personally responsible? The, the Hamas terrorists are responsible for what happened. They entered houses and they slaughtered children and raped women. They did that. But Benjamin Netanyahu for the past year has been um, focusing on the, the judicial coup uh, this is um, an initiative to change Israel judicial system, which was in many people's mind um, very anti-democratic, and this caused a lot of uh, a huge uh, wave of protest in Israel, and this is something that has weakened Israel's society immensely over the past year. It has weakened the Israeli army. Benjamin Netanyahu has been warned over and over again. This is something, this is not my interpretation. This is something that can be read. You know, it's uh, documented, documented everywhere. Benjamin Netanyahu has been warned time and time again by the high, highest ranking government officials that uh, what he's doing is about to cause un- uh, unamendable damage to the Israeli army, to Israel's society, to Israel's economy, to Israel's education, and to Israel's society. And he chose to ignore all the warnings. When his uh, defense minister of defense, Yoav Gallant, when he warned uh, publicly that Benjamin Netanyahu is leading us to catastrophe, to a military catastrophe, he chose to fire him. Later, he had to reverse his decision because of the huge protest. But uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is very, very co much concentrated on his upcoming trial. He has a trial on the horizon, and he's doing, he's basing all of his decisions, many of his decisions on, uh, on, his, on his needs, on his political survival. And this is something he has been um, he has been investing tons of money in the 
in the, in the occupied territories, in the settlement, in the occupied territories. He has put tons of money in guarding, in sending army to the occupied territories and trying to guard the most extreme settlers while they're having their crazy um, rituals. And meantime, in the south of Israel, where hardworking, tax-paying people are living their lives in uh, legitimate parts of Israel, they don't have any, any budgets, um, any budgets for protection, for, and they don't have the army uh, protecting them. This is a very, very lacking, uh, the priorities are very, very strange. And the outcome is October 7th. Outcome, so, yeah, so you're you're saying, I mean, obviously he didn't commit this terrible crime, but he obviously. has a degree of responsibility. He has a degree of responsibility, and not surprisingly, he's the only one of the people who are in charge of Israel's army and other um, and other um, and other high-ranking officials. He's the only one that hasn't expressed any form or level of responsibility right yeah this is That's something the, the, that the, is shall we say the trumpian quality of netanyahu never apologize i wonder your piece was uh and i want to get to your novel but one final question on israel uh you write the problem is i'm lying to my children in your october the 11th piece and at the end you talk about uh there will probably be the beginning of a new Israel, hopefully a better, saner one. Are you, I don't know whether you're lying to us as your reader or maybe lying to yourself. Do you really believe that? I think that there, there are two options and they are so different that um, it's, it's either depressing or hopeful. Uh, one option is that this is going to be, this, this atrocity was so, um, was so extreme and the effect that it has on Israel is so profound that one of two has to happen. It's either we do, we have a complete restart. That means uh, a complete change of the government, which has not only Netanyahu, is, he's not the only problem. He has also uh, appointed very, very problematic people for many, many important, crucial, key uh, positions. So either we uh, have a new uh, leadership, very, very, very different leadership that deals with the very, very deep problems of Israel society, which means um, the occupation, which means our relationship with the Palestinians, which means uh, the very, very, the ultra-Orthodox Jews who are not serving the army and not, many of them not working. All these problems have to be dealt uh, from the root. And if this doesn't happen, and in some miraculous way, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, I don't believe that he can survive what happened on October 7th. But if we, we have the... And if the future is against us and 
another Benjamin Netanyahu or uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, I don't know how to call it, someone that resembles him ideologically, if someone like that takes over somehow, then this is not a new Israel, and then I don't know where we're headed. We are talking with um, Noah Yedlin, uh, talk about Israel, but she's the author of a, a wonderfully funny uh, new book, uh, Stockholm, a novel. It's not new in Israel. It's new in the US and the UK. It's out um, now uh, in, um, in a translated uh, version. I'm going to take a short break. I want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, excellent quarterly journal of culture and politics, lots of interesting stuff covered in it. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then I want to come back with Noah Yedlin and talk not about Israel, but about Stockholm. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with the Israeli novelist and writer Noah Yedlin, one of Israel's leading writers, the author of Stockholm, a novel. Um, no, I'm not sure if you're a, a football fan, but um, in the UK yesterday, Britain's uh, or England's most famous player of all time uh, died, uh, Sir Bobby Charlton. He was uh, the most charismatic figure in the 1966 World Cup winning team. He was uh, clearly uh, England's greatest player and he played for Manchester United, England's greatest team. And yesterday, Manchester United won, and the manager, a Dutch manager, noted that he dedicated the win to Sir Bobby Charlton, even if Sir Bobby Charlton was no longer around. Death does odd things to us. Your new book, uh, Stockholm, a novel, is also about death and how we feel about dead people. Uh, what is it about death that makes us so much more respectful, Noah? Why, why should we pay respects to dead people? I think that, you know, death and and life is kind of, um, it's more or less the same thing. You know, you don't have uh, death without life and you don't have life without death. And But death is the unknown part and death is much longer than life. And uh, we, we're all going to be dead uh, for a long, a much longer time than we're going to be alive. And, um, Can and we even imagine time and death? I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but I think most people assume that death does away with time. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I, I think that it's, it's something, it, it's a bit funny that we care so much about the way we're going to be remembered um, because we're not going to be here to enjoy uh, our memory or or to protest against it. I don't know why we care. I know why we care so much. We care because 
this is it. This, this, is, this is what's going to be left. So I think that this combination of, from one hand, on one hand, um, the severity of death and the way that it has this uh, enormous effect on all of us, but on the other hand, something absurd about it, absurd about, you know, in my novel, uh, there is a dead person and his friends are trying to uh, keep his death a secret so that he receives the Nobel Prize, which he's up for. And I like, I like the questions that arise from that because why the hell should someone care if he gets the Nobel Prize if he doesn't know that he ever got the Nobel Prize? I mean, does it have any meaning anymore? And who does it have a meaning for? And what is success? And what, what does success mean when you're alive and when you're dead? And I think there are so many questions. I can talk about this, obviously, for, uh, for a very long time. But there are so many interesting questions in my eyes that arise from this absurd situation. Yeah, and you, your book is about a group of friends who try to keep a dead economist alive long enough so he can win the Nobel Prize, but he's not perhaps the nicest of people. Do you think that we're scared of the dead because we have no idea of what happens to them? Some people believe they go to heaven or hell. Some people believe they disappear forever. Some people believe that they're resurrected as other animals or beings or forms of life. It really reflects our profound ignorance, which makes us which which makes us particularly vulnerable and and and, and uncomfortable. I, first, I want to I want to address the first uh, sentence in your question. You said um, that uh, the person they're lying for is not the nicest of, of people. I just want to say that uh, most characters. In good novels, I, I'm not saying that mine is a good one, but in general, um, characters in good novels are never very, very kind people. It's not that they're not kind. It's just that if the novel is well written, then it goes very, very deep into the character's soul. And <clears throat> when we are watched from the bottom of our souls, no one looks very well. I think, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I, I didn't mean it critically, as 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 you said, yeah. nice people are boring, especially in novels. Yeah, it's it's you know sometimes people tell me, oh, please make make a character based on me in one of your novels, and I always tell them, be careful what you wish for. You don't want to be a character in one of my novels. You won't like yourself and very much. But as as for your question. Um, the people in my novel, the ones lying and the ones uh, going through this entire ordeal are very, very um, rational people, or at least uh, as rational as one can get. You know, I don't know if anyone is absolutely rational, but they're very, very rational people. They're um, very educated. They're, um, they're a bit cynic and um, cynical and um, 
I think that they're much more concerned with life than they are with death. I don't think that any of them actually believes that uh, anything happens to dead people other than being eaten by worms. But I think that they're very much, uh, it's a novel about life. And it's a novel about the way that we sometimes compete even with the dead, but because we're still alive and we care how we are perceived, we care what we have achieved, we care uh, about uh, our envies and our, our jealousies and our hates. And um, so I think it's, it's, they, they're worried more about their lives than they are about their upcoming death. Uh, your book reminds me in some ways of a wonderful uh, movie, 2017 movie, Death of Stalin. Uh, I don't know if you saw the movie, but it was no, what, I haven't what Stalin's death did to the people around him. Slight, it's a slightly different narrative, but of course Stalin ruled in a rule of uh, a, a, a terror, and then suddenly he was dead, and, and all the people around him who were maintaining and orchestrating his terror sort of clerks of, it, of terror, bureaucrats of terror, didn't quite know what to do. Was Avishai, was he a very strong personality? Was his departure, did it create a kind of vacuum? No one quite knew what to do. The people in the book, they were friends for 50 years, some of them even more. They're in their 60s and they're, um, they're, they have been friends for decades, for many decades. And they all had, they had their uh, group relationship, but they also each had his, his own relationship with the, with the Vishai, with the deceased. And I think that his death is, um, is making each and every one of them try and uh, examine what their lives, which are still, still going on, and are still changeable, what are their lives, um, what, what are, they, are they, their lives worth? What are they made of? What have they achieved? Is there still time to change, uh, to change whatever it is you don't like about your life? Um, and yes, Avisha was a very, very strong personality. He was he also had a very, very close relationship with his people. He had an intimate relationship with one of the women in the novel, a secret intimate relationship. Um, surprise, surprise. Yeah. We think of, uh, when we think of, um, no, when we think of Israeli economists, of course, we think of Daniel Kahneman uh, and Amos uh, Tversky, uh, Michael Lewis wrote a wonderful book about them, the founders of behavioral economics. What kind of economist uh, was Avishai? Was he a, a behavioral economist? And does that add to the plot, the narrative, the complexity or absurdity of the, of the story? He was, actually, uh, he was actually the founder of... Um, of a branch of economy called power economy, ah. which is uh, which is actually a branch of economy that I invented. So if anyone should get the Nobel Prize in economics, it should be me. 
Is it? Um, and the, and it's, the, it's the reverse of behavioral economics? It's not the reverse of behavioral economics. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's economy that tries to, um, to assess power, power struggles within uh, organizations, within companies, within, uh, within uh, public uh, organizations. And there's a whole theory about there's there's all these. He has a specific theory that he's up for the Nobel for, but I didn't. I did want to invent uh, a new kind of economy. First of all, because inventing is fun, and that's more or less why I get up in the morning uh, to do that. And second, because. Um, there is something about economy. I'm not an economist. I've never studied economy, but I did uh, have the help of a lot of economists, very prominent uh, economists, who helped me come up with this uh, theory. And it's really interesting. There's something about economy. I don't know how you feel about that, but whenever I hear what someone won the Nobel for in economy, I, I, I say, I could have come up with that, couldn't have I? Yeah. It, it always seems something, it, it seems very, very simple, but in fact, it obviously isn't simple. So it was very fun trying to come up with a, with a, with a kind of economy that would sound, uh, which would sound logical and which would sound simple, but would convince people that it exists and that it's in fact complicated and Nobel worthy. Yeah, I agree with you. And I actually think behavioral economics is a bit of a scam. And I think that people like Kahneman and Tversky, it's exactly they, they built a, a school of economics that we want to hear that sounds good at TED speeches and to, to people buying books uh, at airports, which is it explains its success. Uh, well, so you, I uh, I agree with you on on a you lot. You said of I, I I have a lot of respect for. I mean, for, they're smart guys. I mean, I'm not denying, but but they're writing what we want to hear. Um, speaking of the Nobel Prize for Economics, the real prize this year was given to a woman, Claudia Goldin, who actually, as it happened last year, was on the show. A delightful woman who has spent her career uh, writing and researching on women's uh, journey to close the gender wage gap. In that sense, I think uh, economics is more legitimate. You note that uh, your hero or anti-hero, dead anti-hero, Avishai, was a bit of a womanizer. Is there a, a, a feminist piece to this, uh, particularly in the way in which these prizes tend to be so dominated by men, juries, and the whole idea of winning is, is, is seems to me in some ways to be extremely male. We, we live in a man's world still, and um, uh, and obviously, I you know I, I learned I, I I did a lot of research on how these things go. I mean, what happens behind the scenes of the Nobel Prize? Because we all know, I, I mean, I think we all know that it's not that you sit at home, you know, reading. Um, reading your philosophy and suddenly the phone rings. You have to do a lot of, a lot of work behind the scenes and there's a lot of pol poli uh, politics related to that. 
Um, so I did a lot of research, which was fascinating about these whole, how these whole things work. And yes, it's, 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 a, it's a man's world, but as all worlds, it changes. It changes by the year. You know, the novel was published in, in Israel in, 2000, in 2016. And I think it's, it's the, the number of women who, has, who have won the Nobel Prize since is, is, uh, is increasing. Um, so, so yes, I'm, I'm writing very re realistic prose and I'm trying, if we talk about uh, power economy, I think mm -hmm. this is one of the things that fascinate me the most. Um, the power, the, the, um, the very, the undercurrents of power struggles uh, between people and inside societies, you know, inside the Israeli society, inside the Western society. And as always, the most interesting things are the unspoken ones. Or the ones that are, you know, even embarrassing to talk about. Uh, like I can give you an example. Um, when I, I I knew that I had a novel when I realized that when a friend succeeds enormously, when one of your friends succeeds enormously, there is nothing in the world you can say other than I'm happy for, I'm happy for you. And that is why uh, you, you may be very happy for your friend, but you can be other things as well, not because you're a bad friend, but because you're human, you know? When a friend succeeds enormously, you're happy for them, but sometimes it makes you wonder about your own life, about your achievements, about your... Uh, your relationship about many things, and these are things that are very uncomfortable to articulate. You cannot say I'm anything other than happy for them, can you? Exactly, that's why we have novelists like you, Noah. One of my friends actually did win the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, Maria Ressa, a very brave, Palis uh, not Palestinian, uh, Filipino um, media activist, journalist, and I was out I've known her for a number of years, and I was in Manila, actually, at her conference this summer. Wow. And uh, one of the things that astonished me, and, and this is, I'm being honest here, it's not just making this stuff up, uh, is, is how little it seems to have changed her. She was a remarkable woman before she won the Nobel Prize, and she remains one. And when you deal with her on a talk to her, when you watch her, nothing seems to have changed. I wonder what would have happened to Avishai had he won, had he stayed alive to win the prize. What? How do you think it would have changed him? I mean, he already seems a a guy, uh, a typical academic, full of himself and his own theories of power economy. Do you think it would have made him unbearable? Do you think all his friends would have cold shouldered him and, and been embarrassed by his behavior had he won the Nobel Prize? It's, it's a very interesting question, and I also have to tell you that I have never been asked this question, and I have been asked more or less everything about this novel. So uh, I have to give you some kind of a medal. Um, Can I have the very, Nobel Prize for questioning? 
yes. nominate me yes. Noah for the Nobel Prize for asking if, questions? If, it, if it's up to me, yes, uh, ah, you, thank you may. You. Um, I, I, I better stay that, alive then. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think that he, I don't think it would have made him unbearable. I think, you know, let's be honest, as, as older as we get, uh, we get more and more unbearable. This is uh, this is true <laughs> even to people who are not Nobel laureates, which is most of us. Uh, our traits, our personality traits, our characters become more extreme. Mm. Um, and most people in their, you know, they, they, they become, the, they have friends because these friends stick with them um usually uh, with memories from better days um i don't think he would have become unbearable i think he would have become more smug probably and you know maybe it's even legitimate you know if you win the nobel prize i think you know good for your friend i mean she's it's amazing that it hasn't changed her but I would think that if someone wins the Nobel Prize, they are entitled to some degree of smugness. Don't you think? Even a, you know, 